This Scientific American podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, your source for audiobooks and more. Audible.com features more than 100,000 titles, including science books you've been meaning to check out, like Dan Ariely's The Honest Truth About Dishonesty, How We Lie to Everyone, Especially Ourselves, and Richard Panic's The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and The Race to Discover the Rest of Reality. Right now, Audible.com is offering a free audiobook and a one-month trial membership to the Scientific American audience. For details, go to audible.com slash Siam. Welcome to the Scientific American podcast, Science Talk, posted on December 18th, 2012. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... New environments inside this uh, starship, for example, new radiation environments, whatever the gas composition uh, is that people are breathing, uh, whatever is the gravity uh, field, those basic environmental conditions... Uh, will reshape the human genome. That's Cameron Smith. He's an anthropologist at Portland State University who studies human evolution and prehistory. But he's also very interested in the human future, including how space travel will impact the human race, both culturally and biologically. He wrote an article on the subject in the January issue of Scientific American called Starship Humanity. He recently talked by phone with John Matson host of our 60-second space podcast, about what might happen to a spacefaring humanity if we really were to take that Star Trek. This article that, that you've written for Scientific American, uh, maybe you could just give us a brief overview of what the article is about. You bet. Um, so far, the experience of humanity in space has been very limited. Um, we have gone up for short periods of time. We've gone in very small numbers. Um, But as space access becomes cheaper and more people start going up, um, eventually we're going to have communities, we're going to have um, uh, populations of people up there, and then it shifts, uh, then our our understanding of that is going to have to shift from purely biology uh, to anthropology. These will be uh, communities of people, and of course communities uh, are cultural, and they're also biological. So anthropology marries culture and biology, and it will be used to help us plan out successful space colonization. Let's say, you know, uh, uh, just to set a scenario, a group of space travelers sets out on a multi-generational voyage to uh, Alpha Centauri, where we now know that there's an exoplanet. Uh, so what's going to happen to these people on the way? Well, we can we can only predict that change will occur. We can make some predictions about uh, some very few uh, Uh, biological changes that might occur, but because mutation is random uh, and and mutation is the origin of new characteristics in populations, because that is ultimately random, it's not entirely possible to say precisely what will happen. What we can say, though, is that new environments, for example, new radiation environments, whatever the gas composition uh, is that people are breathing, uh, whatever is the gravity uh, field inside this uh, starship, those basic environmental conditions uh, will reshape the human genome subtly, subtly, but they will reshape it. We know that we have evolved under 
almost 15 pounds of pressure per square inch at sea level. And in the last few thousand years, though, some people have migrated to higher elevations where they're under somewhat less pressure. Uh, their biology has changed to account, for, or to, to account for that or to make it possible to live there. Um, they have uh, different blood oxygen levels. They have deeper chests with greater what's called lung ventilation, greater capacity for breathing in and taking in oxygen. Um, and even the uh, the biology of the developing um, uh, infant is uh, is somewhat different. And I'm certain that that exactly the same sort of thing on that same magnitude. Uh, uh, will happen in off-Earth uh, environments. Now, what about weightlessness? Do we have any sense of, of what that would do to human physiology is, in, terms of, in terms of stature or, or size of, of, of human beings? Weightlessness is a big, a big issue. And, you know, 30 years of almost continuous presence of humans in space, this is quite amazing, it, whether in Mir or the International Space Station or other stations, for 30 years somebody has been in in human in Earth orbit uh, uh, almost continuously. What they have learned through that long period is that, yeah, uh, weightlessness can have some pretty detrimental effects. You, bone loss is one of them. Uh, muscle is also reduced, but bone loss is a big one. And so I don't think we're going to try to do long-term space colonization in free-floating zero gravity. So we'll go to places like Mars, where there's uh, where there's um, uh, one third, roughly, the gravity of Earth, and I think we'll build these uh, things that or uh, that rotate and give us artificial. Well, uh, they give us gravity by by rotating. You saw it in. Uh, 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 2001 Space Odyssey, the rotating space station. Uh, that works, and um, I think we're going to be doing that for a much longer time than uh, than trying to uh, actually live in, in zero or, or very small gravity. But yes, it will have effects on the, the physiology as well. Uh, I was thinking, of course, in, in Mars, at one-third roughly gravity, Essentially, in, in evolution, essentially, if you can get away with something that costs less energy to do than your sibling, you have a selective advantage. And on Mars, if you don't require all of the muscle that a person does on Earth, where you have an extra two-thirds gravity, then presumably you live in better health uh, and, and have more offspring. So I think we will, in the long term on Mars, I think we will eventually see a lither, uh, lighter, lither uh, build than on Earth. So the image of those sort of spindly little green men is, is maybe not too far-fetched? Uh, maybe so. <laughs> now, now, do we have a sense of how quickly these changes start to happen? Yeah, the the scale, the time scale for significant biological changes, uh, yes, you can get them in a few centuries. You can start to see uh, effects on the physiology in a number of centuries. And this is the scale, uh, the time scale that I've been working with. Uh, for example, I'm, I'm in contact with um, a group in Germany called Icarus Interstellar. They're devising uh, uh, propulsion systems to reach stars on the scale of several centuries. So I've been thinking about that scale as well. You know, what kind of changes would we see uh, in, in that kind of time frame? 
and uh, some basic population genetics calculations that I've done that talk about or that uh, concern what's called time to fixity. This is the spread of uh, novel genes in uh, in a population. It suggests that yes, within a few centuries, you could have um, you could have changes on the order of different uh, skin hues or altered skin colors, different hair textures, uh, but radical reshaping of the human body. For example, you know, major stature uh, differences or even new structures, new anatomical structures, those should take much, much longer. Those should take into the many thousands of years. There's definitely a perception, especially in, in this country, in the U.S., that space exploration is is on pause, that it's ground to a halt. And uh, I happen to disagree with that, but but it's clear that, you know, no one is going to Alpha Centauri tomorrow uh, so, so why why is it important to consider all these things now? Why is it important to think out uh, all the implications of what space travel might mean? Oh, it's it's absolutely important to start now because there's so much to do. I mean, we're talking about if we're talking about long term voyages, we're talking about again understanding things that we don't even we are just barely understanding today. For example, we have only in the last two decades got a, a, a high-resolution understanding of the human genome. And that helps us to understand evolution, and evolution, it, it cannot be stopped. The only way to stop it is with extinction. And evolution of humanity is going to continue in space. And to prepare for it, again, you could do it without anthropology, but I don't think it would survive. I don't think it would work. So to do it with a good expectation of success... Um, we need to think in long term. Well, what is the field that has given us a long term understanding of humanity? That's anthropology. Biology, relatively short term, although it deals with evolution, but uh, humanity, uh, human evolution is somewhat different than most other evolution, and it's anthropology that has explored that. So, uh, I think anthropology is, 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 is going to be central to this. So as the physicists and engineers are working out propulsion systems and cosmic ray shielding, is this, some, this is something that anthropologists should be working on in parallel, you believe? I believe absolutely. We need to build a, a, an anthropology of space, uh, an anthropology of space uh, colonization. Um, we can uh, – we can – we know if we're going to spend generations in space that you have to prepare for a long term. And again, we think of it as, you know, people pop up there and then they come back down. And the long-term view is that, no, eventually this will be migration. And this is part of the the, the goal. Even just a few years ago, uh, NASA had a vision report that they released, which said that the essential mission of NASA was uh, to better life here on Earth, to extend life there, that is, move uh, some part of humanity, you know, be able to live off of Earth, and then um, to find life beyond, and that is exobiology and trying to find life beyond. Well, the interesting thing there is that in common, in all three of those, what is common about those? It's not computers, it's not the technology and all that. You need all of that. What is common with those three statements is that it is about life. <laughs> it is about living things. And living things change through time by evolution, and it's anthropology that has understood human evolution. You have a uh, fairly recent book out about evolution. I have a, a book out now, a popular science book about human adaptation and space colonization. 
And in that, my co-author and I are sketching out. It's an exploration. We're sketching out some of the kinds of uh, uh, ways that anthropology can assist with, with making a success of space colonization. Um, but right now, I'm, I'm working on a technical book. It'll be a couple years down the line, but a technical book that, again, brings, brings everything pertinent known from anthropology to the concept of, of space colonization. And uh, hopefully that can be a foundation for uh, a space anthropology. Now, now, just to, to sort of wrap things up here, uh, aside from the physics and the engineering of the actual, you know, spacecraft, what do you think will be the biggest challenge facing uh, either the people who are putting together a crew for a long-duration space flight or for the crew themselves in terms of the uh, anthropological, sociological changes and, and conditions that they're going to face? Well, I, you know, one, one critique of, of this whole endeavor of space colonization and space act, activity by people in general is that, well, this isn't going to fix any, fix, fix humanity. We're just going to transport our, our ancient problems off of the surface of the earth. Um, well, I, I, you know, I think so. Yeah, this isn't meant to fix humanity. It is meant to give humanity an insurance policy if, you know, we, if the Earth is hit by a catastrophe, at least somebody's left. If we're, you know, several planet species, for example, the biggest challenge. Uh, I think they'll be both. They'll be both biological and cultural. Um, you know, we don't know how reproduction works in space. We also have to be very careful. We can't just be ready to go and colonize space once we understand human biology in space and human evolution. We have thousands of plant and animal domesticates that are going to have to go with us. We can't be eating, you know, canned food <laughs> for for generations. We have to ensure the health of those populations as well. And that's why you asked before, you know, why start now? Well, there is a tremendous amount to do to think about all this. So what will be the challenges... They'll be both biological and cultural. We will have biological evolution happening. Some of it will be painful. Much of that evolution will play out on the those early stages of development, and there will be um, uh, there will be uh, increase, let's say, in infant mortality. Um, we'll also have our same cultural baggage. We have ethnic rivalries. We have political differences. We have religious issues. I don't think that's going to go away. Uh, we should we should certainly take the uh, you know our best nature with us, but I you know those things are are rather ancient, and um, uh, I think those those will be as big a challenge as the biology. Cameron Smith's book, co-authored with Evan Davies, is titled "Emigrating Beyond Earth: Human Adaptation and Space Colonization." And Smith's article, Starship Humanity, is in the January issue of Scientific American. A short preview is available free on the website, titled How Humans Will Evolve on Multi-Generational Space Exploration Missions. We'll be back right after this word from Kerry Smith at The Nature Podcast. This week we taste wine with a hint of drought, find out the secrets of scaling in embryos, and look back at the biggest science stories of 2012. Go to www.nature.com slash podcast.
Well, that's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out our in-depth report about humanity's enduring fascination with the apocalypse. The so-called Mayan apocalypse is just the latest in a long line of doomsday predictions, and ironically, it will not be the last. Also, follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new article hits our website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Scientific American's Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.